it really grinds my gears? No, but I don't see you coming up with anything. Why don't you get with the freaking program? And that, people, is what grinds my gears. All right, folks, uh, up for our next segment, we got uh, Christian Rigney, Big Rig, out here uh, for what's grinding his gearbox. Big Rig, what's grinding your gearbox today, buddy? You know what's grinding my gearbox today is what moron changed the float and landing gear pressures to numbers I can't even comprehend. <laughs> I mean, it was really easy, right? It was like big dummies like myself, 1,600 PSI on the landing gear. Uh-huh. I have to be 16 to drive. That was a nice, easy round number. <laughs> I don't even remember like what it is right now. I couldn't even tell you because if I look at that stupid gauge, that thing goes in increments of 10, 20, 30, 40, and then it's supposed to be up to 1,000 PSI. Like One of those needles is, what, 400 PSI, and I'm expected <laughs> to be down to whatever it is. So dumb. Same with the float pressure. Like It used to be... 3,100, now it's what? Like you said, 1,790 would have been a nice number. I don't know. We could have gone with that. <laughs> Depends on what time zone, temperature, latitude, you know, where the solstice of the sun is. Are the Olympics on this year? That's your pressure. <laughs> to me, that's awful. That's what's grinding my gearbox. Oh, yeah. Not not to mention it's usually fogged up in the glass, so you can't read it anyways, right? <laughs> yeah, no kidding. Like, come on now. Oh, man. Big Rig's great. You're, uh, like like I always say, your honesty is just fantastic. Um, I know. They need they need to run all dash one changes through me. So I could just say, yep, stupid. Nope. Dummies like me are not going to remember that. So yeah, yeah. I, that's my proposal. We need some, for people like you, we need something like greater than half and then you're good, you know? Yeah. <laughs> all right, gentlemen. All right. You've heard it folks from our very own big rig. Uh, thank you, sir. And you have a good one. All right. Flight suit Friday podcasters. Welcome, welcome, welcome. My name is Kenny Ingram, and I'm sitting here with Sam Haffensteiner. Today, we're going to be looking at the third part of the Golden Ray case, and that's... Is that... Did you just pop champagne? Uh, well, yes, sir, I did. All right. Well, that's a good way to start off this episode, but uh, yeah, we're going to be diving into the uh, rescue of the four crew members that were trapped down in the engine room. They endured 150-degree heat over about 36 hours. Uh, sounds like they were actually swimming in the water that was coming into the engine room to cool themselves off. And we're going to be talking with uh, the crew of the 6547, which was Lieutenant Commander Barnett, Lieutenant Commander Blaish, Petty Officer Baker, and Petty Officer Bersky, who will uh, not be joining us, but uh, the other ones will. So we're looking forward to it. Sam? Yeah, mimosas are ready. Let's get into this. Let's make it happen. All right, here we are for part three of the rescue of the Golden Ray. I got the crew of the 6547 on the line with us, and turns out Petty Officer Bersky is able to make it with us. Uh, you're retiring tomorrow, is that correct, Mike? I am retiring tomorrow. Uh, another month or so of active duty, but that's my official retirement. Well, that's fantastic. Thanks for uh, joining us. And to kick it off, uh, Crystal, why don't you go ahead and give us like the ESPN version of uh, what happened that day? All right. So thanks for having me. Um, basically, our ops boss uh, solicited uh, to cobble together a crew for basically supporting a salvage team that was that was put together across the country, mainly from Houston. 
um, that were going to cut into the ship uh, to try to rescue the last four people. Um, basically, the Coast Guard had been keeping contact with at least one person alive. There were 20 people rescued. You guys have heard that. 20 people rescued the night before um, off of the Golden Rain. There's four crew members missing. It's suspected to just be trapped some, somewhere in the ship, and it was not confirmed whether they were all together or not. But the Coast Guard did have um, about 20-minute tap intervals throughout the day, um, just someone tapping from inside the ship. So they knew there was at least one person alive, the rest uh, unknown. And um, they called in a specialized salvage team that was going to try to extract at least this one person from where they thought they heard the tapping from. So uh, in support of that, our ops boss solicited for a crew, um, basically a SAR crew, so the four of us, to go and support whatever the salvage team needed. Um, and we were suspecting to be transporting the salvage crew and gear, but that's really all we knew. We also knew we might be on standby for uh, medevacking anybody that was uh, brought out of the Golden Ray, if, if that was possible. So basically, uh, yeah, we we uh, ended up going and um, transporting a lot of equipment and a lot of people and uh, helping to affect the, the rescue of what ended up being all four men alive. All right. That's, that's an awesome intro for us. Uh, before we dive into the specific details of that, uh, we'll go ahead and just get a quick background uh, where what you guys have done in the Coast Guard, where you're from, and maybe an interesting fact if you think it's worth sharing. But, Crystal, we'll go ahead and start with you. Welcome. Okay, thanks for having me again. Um, so I'm from Stewart, Florida. It's about uh, two hours north of Miami on the east coast of Florida. Um, I'm an OCS commission. Um, I went to Florida State, and then I uh, joined the Coast Guard through the ceasefire program in 07 and um, then commissioned in 09. Um, I went to the Gulf Strike Team, which was over there on ATC Mobile. Nice. Um, for two and, yep, two and a half years after OCS. Um, from 2010 to 2012, pretty much I was there, and then I headed off to flight school. And then I'm a 65 uh, pilot uh, for two tours, one in Beringen and then uh, one in Savannah. And uh, after completing my student engineering syllabus in Savannah, I short toured out of there and got the uh, assistant engineering officer job at Sacramento, which uh, has uh, given me the opportunity to fly the C-27 out here. Um, the mighty Spartan got a lot more power than the 65, but it's uh, definitely a different different world out here. So I've been here about a year, um, and uh, and I'm enjoying it. Um, on the AU out here. So that's cool. That's about, yeah. Those yeah. C-27s, they got some power. So I, Sam and I were stationed in San Francisco and we would, you guys would hitch us a ride down to uh, Magoo. And I remember the first time we took off, you're just kind of sitting there and you guys hit that thing. And I almost fell out of my seat in the back there. <laughs> Definitely buckled <laughs> yeah, it's up. Yeah. Quite there. the uh, climb out. Yeah. Yeah. That's cool. Do you like uh fixed wing uh, better than uh, helicopters? Put you on the spot. I'm going to be honest and say, I don't, I don't like it better, but, um, but you know, there's, it's, it's been nice to learn something new, but nice to be a part of a different community and learn a different aircraft. And, um, but you know, there's definitely things I missed about the Hilo world. Um, I'm sure you know, the, uh, the SAR warrior vest is probably one of those things, right? And the MVGs on your Yeah. Helmet. You got the Bose headset and the no vest, no gloves. Pretty nice. You guys wear boots when you fly or are you doing Sperry topsiders? <laughs> no, we do um, just barefoot. Oh, yeah. Nice. Perfect. Yeah, nice. 
Cool. Well, yeah, thanks for uh, being on the show. Uh, Dan, hit us. What do you got, man? Hey, guys. Thanks for having me on the show and being flexible with the recording time. Um, I'm Lieutenant Commander Dan Bleach, originally from Staten Island, New York, in the uh, fifth borough up there. Uh, I went through OCS just like Crystal in 2009, but in uh, the other class that year. Um, after that, I got assigned to the Enforcement Division of Sector New York, right back in uh, my home island in Staten Island. I was there just about a year, and then I got orders to a flight school in Pensacola right around the early days of the T6 program. Got my, uh, one of my top picks of Miami out of there. Had a great four and a half years down there, learned the flight of 65. Following that, I did three years in Atlantic City, about half of that doing a full-time RWAI. And uh, from there, I got a good deal coming down to Savannah, and I've been here for about two years now. That's great. Yeah. Welcome, man. Um, are you, I guess, interesting fact, are you a Jets fan or are you a Giants fan? I'm not a huge football fan. I do like the Yankees, though. Yankees? All right. Well, I should have said yeah. Yankees or Mets. I was just hoping to say you, <laughs> you hate the Jets because nobody likes the Jets. But I'll say it. I don't have a dog in the fight. <laughs> <laughs> cool. Welcome. Uh, how about you, uh, Matt? So we got Matt Baker on the line? Yeah. So uh, this is uh, AMT2 uh, Matthew Baker. I joined uh, October like 2013 and like uh, first was trying to get stationed out to the West Coast. And uh, of course, uh, they put me on, when I asked for a big boat on the West Coast, they put me on a small boat in Cape Cod. Nice. Uh, little, uh, an 87. Uh, after that, about a year there, I went overseas to Bahrain. So again, another tiny boat, even further from home. And then uh, after that, uh, of course, A school and then down to Savannah where uh, we did the rescue. Um, I'm now stationed over in uh, San Francisco. Um, only been here for a few months, but I'm, I'm loving it so far. Great. It's uh, some really, really cool flying uh, and some really cool people that I'm working with so far. So having a, having a great time. Yeah. Welcome. What, what made you decide to go the aviation route? Um, <laughs> so like I, I kind of joined thinking that maybe I was going to like try and do uh, or put myself in the hat to try and do the swimmer thing. Um, like uh, Mike is doing and very quickly realized after doing like taking over RNS uh, on my 87, that that wasn't the life I wanted to lead. <laughs> and when I went to a air station, uh, I saw like, I got there right in the middle of a heavy maintenance package on a 60. And I was like, this is what I want to do. I, I want to get my hands dirty. And um, thought that that was, that was really cool. I think that like definitely the mission uh, that Mike does is awesome, but you know, I still get to be a part of it and, and, uh, try to be somebody who influences and makes him makes make sure that he gets back to the helicopter safely. So that's, that's what I'm, that's what I enjoy. Nice. Are you implying that, uh, all swimmers are kind of prima donnas and don't get their hands dirty? Yeah. That's kind of what I heard. Mike, what do you, what do you think about that? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Uh, maybe, maybe the rest of the time, uh, <laughs> maybe a little bit. I was going to say that a lot of stereotypes do have a place in reality, but you know, not everybody can be judged <laughs> off of that metric. <laughs> oh, oh man. Yeah. Folks, that other voice is, uh, Mike Bearski. Hey Mike, uh, you want to tell us about your background? We know you're stepping out tomorrow, but, uh, what about the rest of your story career? Uh, yeah, I'll, I'll do that. I, uh, I joined in 2001. Uh, I was actually in uh, two weeks prior to getting out was when 9-11 kicked off. So mm -hmm. I had no clue what was going to happen at that point. Um, and uh, I went to, and at that point I had guaranteed 7th District, Florida. So in my head, I'm like putting in all the small boat stations. It's just some sort of a Baywatch scenario. Yeah. And then they put me on a big cutter. <laughs> just how it goes. Uh -huh. so, I got on a 210 in Key West for about a year and a half. 
then they sent me up to Miami for the airman program back then. Let's see if uh, you know I even had a chance to register something. Um, that's just what school was up. up. I joined knowing I was going to do that. So that everything was geared towards it. Gotcha. I got to Rector Summer School in 2003, uh, graduated 2004, February. Um, one time through, proud of that. And uh, then I, they just put me right there in Elizabeth City, North Carolina for the next four years, so I'm 60. Uh-huh. Uh, after the 60s, I went to New Orleans for four years. Um, Phenomenal search and rescue out in New Orleans. I have a lot of my, my experience with search and rescue obtained uh, in New Orleans. Big water in, in Elizabeth City, just a lot of different, different types of search and rescue. Mm-hmm. Uh, then I did five years in Atlantic City, uh, where I picked up my beautiful wife, and then I finished up my career down here in Savannah. We're going we're gonna to stick it out here in Savannah, but this area is phenomenal. Man, that's great. You, you ready to hang it up tomorrow? Yeah, you know, uh, just the way everything's going, and I don't know. I, you know, the Coast Guard does a lot of missions, and, and they do them well. And uh, but I just I never got in for you know air intercepts and LE and, and all that kind of stuff. So mm-hmm. I'm I'm pure search and rescue from back when it was the, the number one priority, and I'm just yeah, I'm good. I'm good. Yeah, I'll, I'll miss going in and out of helicopters. No doubt about that. I respect uh, that. That's all awesome. All the other stuff, I'm good. Well, thank you for your service. Uh, before we, like I, I said, before we that. dive into the uh, details, so um, ops reaches out to you guys. Hey, let's. I need a a team to dream team, right? Yeah, dream team. Let's put them together and let's go get the rest of these four people out of this uh, vessel that's sitting on its side at this point. So, what kind of briefings did you guys get? How much information did you have on the case? What had happened? What's going to happen? Yeah, Crystal, you want to start? Yeah, I'll start. So, um, honestly, we all knew what had happened the night before. So I think the capsizing, um, you guys can correct me, but I think the, it capsized around one in the morning. Um, and we had sent the two, uh, other more dream team crews, um, out there to, to end the coast guard on the surface as well. Um, you know, rescuing 20 people off this boat. And then we knew that, um, you know, there's four missing, uh, we got that brief from the captain who I guess was, uh, we knew he was fairly, um, concerned with leaving the boat. Um, I think when, when, uh, I forget which swimmer, uh, rescued him off the pilot house. I think, I think that was Nate. Yeah, I think it was Nate Newberg. Yeah. So, so, uh, yeah, that was, yeah, that was so, Nate yeah. So Nate Newberg got that guy off and he, he didn't want to leave as far as I remember from all the, the stuff I heard, um, because there's four missing, but they were like, you know, get you off you're going to be more of a help trying to figure out where these guys might be mm-hmm. um and uh so basically we i guess i'm not quite sure but i know that you know sometimes these guys are trained like you know tap on tap on stuff if you're ever trapped in here because we're going to be listening for tapping if you're alive so they did hear tapping uh, it confirmed that at least one of the four was alive no conditions unknown injuries unknown all that stuff um Mm -hmm. but they're like all right we got to try to get this guy out and i had just heard that they had basically been you know working this all day and and dan you can jump into if if this is wrong but i think it was around 10 30 at night we got the text from the ops boss to all the pilots saying it was it was pretty late at night it was like um yeah it was even later for me 
Yeah, it was about it was about 20 hours after it had capsized in like the late evening. We got a, a text saying, "Hey, who's who's going to volunteer? You know, to to um, go at yeah at daybreak, pretty much at you know five five a.m. ramp. So it was like 10 o'clock at night. They're asking for a five a.m. ramp for a flight mm-hmm. for support of an unknown level. You know, and it was kind of funny because the, the our our offspots at the time didn't really sell it like it was going to be anything exciting you know it's like early in the morning it's 10 o'clock at night and it's just like very kind of like crickets on the the text string um and uh yeah yeah i remember that too um this hillary smith was an acting ops that night we were in between ops bosses at the time Uh um and she had done a text earlier in the day around 3 30 just looking for a b2 crew just in case there was a need down there in case we were burning through the ready crews um and she called it a container ship i'm like i have no idea what's going on like it's a Saturday or Sunday, and I didn't really have an idea that the case had happened. So I was texting, you know, people in DMs like, "What is going on?" And someone sent me a link to the rollover article. Um, and then later that night, between nine and ten o'clock, is when um, uh, Hillary Smith then uh, reached out with the text looking for volunteers. And Crystal and I were lucky enough just to answer back the group text, and that's how we really got assigned to the crew. But like Crystal was saying, it was about you know seven hours later we had to be there for a, a pre-dawn ferry flight down to uh, the airport right by the rollover ship of uh, St. Simon's Island. Yeah, I'm surprised. Um, and then, oh, sorry. Go ahead. Oh, I was just gonna say, you know, on the uh, on the ride down there, we were kind of discussing generalities of what the day might look like for us. You know, we we had a litter with us just in case there was a medevac required. We were just kind of bringing all the gear we thought we might need for the day. Um, and then we got down there just before dawn, and we did a lap around the Golden Ray, and you could see this ominous dark square object just right in the inlet, right by the airport. Yeah, uh, um, I was. And then I was we thinking... landed and went in for like. Okay. Uh, sorry, I'm going to backtrack you just a little bit because uh, I, I think this is funny. But I figured most of the uh, responses to Hillary's text were probably beer stein emojis at 10:30 <laughs> at night on a whatever day that yeah. was of the week. <laughs> yeah, I've definitely seen those other text strings for uh, you know the weekend duty calls, but uh, this time there was interest. Um, I yeah. think enough people knew about it or uh, just were willing to volunteer, and Crystal and I just got lucky enough to respond first. Yeah. Uh, what about what about for you, Matt? Uh, was it the same? Were, were there a lot of flight mechs uh, clamoring, or were you just kind of leading chief oh, called I, you and said you're doing this? Yeah, they had like infinitely more information than I had. Like, I just got a random call from the watch captain at eleven, and I mean, I don't really like drink much in particular, so I think I'm. They, everybody knows that, so they just wind up calling me for all this stuff. Yeah, <laughs> um, and I mean, he, he he had absolutely no idea really what was like going on because obviously nobody had come back he just knew that both of his crews were going to be bagged yep and he needed somebody and uh <laughs> and he wound up calling me he's like i don't know what's going on you might be picking up bodies you might not be doing this i have no idea so i went in completely in the dark about quite what was going to wind up happening mm-hmm. um like I, I saw it uh and then i wound up looking up the news after the fact because i hadn't been following it um i was like on third shift at the time and he called me at around 11. That's so yeah, it was, um, yeah, I mean, I was just happy to be given the opportunity. It was really funny though. Uh, it wasn't until after the fact later that apparently they had somebody else who was supposed to be on a B2 the entire time. And the watch captain forgot about it. (laughs) And he was like telling me how he, he found out because he wound up seeing the video on the news. And was like <laughs> super upset. Uh, he was like, I can't believe you stole this right from under me. 
but uh, I, I guess it just happened to be right the right like right place right time and was really really excited to be a part of it that's that's really funny um were you guys able to get sleep or did your brain start running with um hey uh there's there's stuff going on what are we going to be doing how are we going to do it um mike i, def- I definitely lost sleep <laughs> I, I'll tell you my experience is after after uh, we we picked the crew, um, you know I knew Dan and I were at least the pilots. Um, I, I gave Hillary Smith, our acting officer at the time, a call, and um, I had that like kind of like worried sixty five pilot mindset because she was like, "This is what I think you're going to be needed for," and I was just like, "Oh gosh, like our you know our little." Our little baby helicopter, that's a lot of gear. That's a lot of dudes. We were actually told it was eight eight men um, team. We ended up doing five. But Yeah, can you, expand, can you expand on that a little bit? So what were you guys asked to do? So so when I called her and I got some more information, it was a little bit more like, all right, the, the main purpose of the request for a 65 was the possibility of, like, get, we need to get these guys on the on the Golden Ray, you know? And, um there had i'm sure there had been talk about bringing them surface side and all that and if you look at the pictures you can see why that would have been difficult as well yeah so the preferred route was um bring everything they need to the to the top of the boat they like to repel down they're really good at that and um and then all their gear and then any gear that they might need throughout the day so you know in in a 65 pilot mindset it's like well, that's a lot of hoist. There's not a lot of space. That's multiple flights, you know. Oh, yeah. um, I wonder what the wind is. You know, like you start thinking and that's like very pessimistic 65 pilot mindset, which is the way we have to think, you know. So that, you know, just to, I kind of bring that up just to answer your question. Like I had immediately started Googling pictures of like where the Golden Ray was at the time, what it looked like, um, what, you know, what the last news pictures and stuff were. I'm just like, huh, you know, like, I wonder how we're going to do this if it's like in worst case scenario, you know, and, and by what I mean by that is like a lot of stuff, a lot of people and there's four guys trapped, you know, this is a life-saving thing. Like how can we, you know, save time, you know, and, and Dan and I ended up, you know, talking about that um, the next morning and we talked about it as a crew on how we could actually save time, which kind of goes into probably the rest of the story. Yeah. Mike, did you get voluntold uh, for this case? I, uh, I was the guy doing the schedules for the shop at that time. So when you start to get those undesirable cases, which is what, again, like, like Crystal and, and Jim was saying, you, you get used to taking in that information and be like, okay, crap. I mean, we got to do it. It's just going to be one of those long things. It doesn't amount to anything. And now I'm the easy button. I'm doing the schedule. I'm the easy button. So I'll, I'll suffer in silence and just take it. Yeah, that's, uh, that's from any scheduler out there. <laughs> you are not alone for doing that, man. You voluntold yourself. Yep, exactly. No way to blame but myself. Oh man! Uh, so we're we're at the air station. Let's let's fast forward. You guys wake up in the morning. You get there. Um, are you guys loading gear there at the air station, or are you just briefing as a crew? Maybe flying down to Brunswick, picking up people and gear. What's what's the plan, Dan? Yeah. Hey, um, that's definitely uh, what occurred. Uh, we got there. You know, grabbed some goggles, um, standard ready gear. Um, I mentioned earlier we threw a litter on. Just you know, it's good measure just to have a plan in case we did have to do medevacs. That was one of our plans for going down there was to be a standby crew for the uh, survivors if we were able to get them out. Um, so we did this uh, pre-dawn ferry down there um, 
and then met up at an interagency brief. And then from there, after the briefing is when the gear loading and uh, passenger loading commenced. Okay. And that was at the same time as the airport. What happened at that interagency crew brief? Was that the people that were going on and kind of what they needed and expected of you guys? Uh, it was a big group. It was um, the sector commander for Sector Charleston. Uh, Captain Reed was there as well as um, the point of contact, the guy leading the uh, IMT. Um, but he also had the fire department, um, sheriffs, like any agency you could think of from that county or city or even the Coast Guard being the federal representatives were all represented there. Um, but these uh, civilian rescuers that were flown in from Texas, uh, from I think Elevated was the name of the company, they, uh, they came in and the, uh, everybody started to look to them for like, what do we do? Um, mm-hmm. Just kind of hear their wisdom. And uh, somebody asked at one point, like, what are the conditions like inside the ship? And he gave the speech that really reminded me of a Quint speech from Jaws about the uh, U.S. S. Indianapolis uh, shark attack. <laughs> um, you know, he just everybody's dead quiet and staring at him. He's like, oh, worst environment imaginable you know, super high temperatures, toxic air, um, well, you know, all realistic things that I think the survivors did have to endure, but it was just this, his words were hanging in the air, everybody was just listening to them. Um, and once we kind of finished talking, that was when the work really started. Yeah. It's kind of like what, uh, Crystal was talking about that helicopter mentality of like, if something bad isn't happening, then it's about to. And I think it sounds like those guys were prepared for, uh, the worst. Um, so what kind of, ORM discussions were going on um, at that point with, with the sector commander and uh, the specialty folks that were there and then your crew? Uh, well, we definitely, mean we were doing this as a life-saving mission for sure. I mean, deploying uh, anybody from the aircraft that's a rescuer, you know, like a rescue swimmer or these specialized people definitely fits the SAR mindset for us. So we were weighing all of our options as far as, you know, evaluating the hoisting area, if hoisting was appropriate. Um, Crystal definitely threw the idea of a landing on the ship if it looked good um, out pretty early. And we're all like, yeah, that's kind of yeah. a great idea. Uh, that, was, that was like on the flight down. And we were like, well, do we want to, we really wanted to see what the conditions were on scene. Cause I mean, we had, we had discussed the thing that obviously, uh, or we had heard had been on fire. So we were like, does that affect the structural integrity? What's mm-hmm. going on? I think it wasn't until we got down there and we really kind of understood the severity of the conditions that the people who were trapped were probably in inside. And then also talking to, I think there was a structural engineer on scene who we discussed whether or not it would actually be good to actually have a helicopter on it. And we, we, we talked a lot about like what, what can we do to mitigate it and whether or not that was appropriate in the best way to actually deal with transporting all the gear. And that was like one of the things that I noticed uh, very quickly was once we saw how much they wanted and how many people they wanted to bring on board and what they wanted to bring, I mean, putting all that stuff in a little basket and bringing it down and doing hoist after hoist after hoist, at least to me, just didn't make sense. Yeah, it would have taken a long time. Yeah, that's all good stuff, Matt. Um, I also want to point out that like um, when the uh, two hoisting crews from the previous (coughs) event gone out the ship was kind of at about a 70 degree angle yep when we show up that morning and did like a pre-dawn recon of the ship before we landed um after the brief um it had rolled to about 90 degree it's like a perfectly flat level deck from what we could see so that was going into our decision making as well um and then once we spoke with the engineers on scene uh at that briefing at the fbo um they pointed out that like that ship is sunk in the, the sand or the mud and it's really not going anywhere it's just it's stable it's settled it's not afloat um, so, I mean, th- this is all things that are really like rain our ears is like great signs 
But yeah, talking about the fire um, that had been the ship earlier, you could see some singe spots mm-hmm. on the deck, but those were all kind of confined to one specific area of the ship, and that's not really where they wanted the uh, crews dropped off. Yeah. So what, did, what was the uh, subject matter expert, the guy that was the engineer, what was his ultimate recommendation? Like, yes, you can land on this thing, or hey, maybe, or I wouldn't recommend it. So, um, we have both possibilities of either landing on it because that would expedite, obviously, just getting the equipment out or hoisting like, like Matt had brought up, which once you saw the equipment, just was not really a feasible option. Mm-hmm. So when we, we brought that up to their salvage team, the, the guy was immediately like, oh, yeah, that's five-eighths and six steel. It's not going anywhere. Like, and it was almost as simple as that where we had – it now became one of our options was, okay, then that makes the most sense at this point. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, yeah, they asked how much we weighed, and then he's like, oh, yeah, you're fine. Yeah. Well, so were you guys uh, ship helo qualled current? What was your status? Nope. <laughs> <laughs> no one both? Nope. Yeah. <laughs> we had nope. both previously done ship yeah. helo um, at our previous units, um, but neither of us were current. Uh, because of the RWAI mission in Savannah, we don't maintain DLQ stuff anymore. Yeah. Okay. Is that something yeah, you so, guys... And we, Go ahead. So I was going to say, like, we, we did, you know, we talked about that because we knew it would come up. You know, we knew, we know enough, you know... Dan and I knew enough in the Hilo in the Hilo world that that would be a question, either in hindsight or from the ops boss when we called. But um, we, you know, it's not a ship anymore, right? Like it's it's a capsized ship, so it's kind of a, a big structure, right? And that and that's kind of how we we thought about it was, you know, we the you know we it's a possibly unstable structure. But we didn't, we didn't think so. Common sense told us no, and it's a uh, maybe a not strong structure. Which common sense told us no, it's strong, you know. Um, and then, you know, the Coast Guard's not, you know, a stranger to landing on unknown surfaces for SAR. You know, you land in a in a grassy field with you know unknown softness. You got to get your neck to look down at the tires and stuff like that. So that's the way we approached it. We approached it as a as a pad, a structure. Um, you know, that we'd have to mitigate risk um, and use some common sense and fly the helicopter. Um, and that's kind of how we, we led ourselves down that path. And, and I will say about your question about the, the engineer um, that we talked to, um, basically that was the last thing that I did before I called the ops boss and pitched this idea. And Dan and I agreed we we're going to need to make a call about this because it's going to end up on the news. We don't want to ask for forgiveness on this one. We want to we want to, we want to land on it. We're going to need to, you know, talk to the hospital about this. Um, but, uh, the last thing I did was go over to this guy and he, and he was the engineer kind of a configuration expert and he was advising the salvage crew. So he's the, he's the guy that's an expert on the ship. He knows where the compartments are, what the structure is like, how thick the steel is, where they should cut based on the tapping. I mean, he's like the guy advising the salvage teams on where to cut their hole. Um, so we had this big kind of powerful brief and, and they said, what can you do for us? And we're like, well, we're going to get you your gear and you're get, we're going to get you your people there. Um, we're considering as a crew landing on the boat for you to expedite because right. The only thing that we can do as a crew to like, you know, max effort warranted risk for SAR saving a life, relieving intense pain and suffering. Like the only thing we can do to really help that is save time. You know, that, that's our, that's our effort. That's our max effort there to save time yeah. and not be hoisting all day, 
you know, hoisting all day just so they can cut a hole in here and see if one person's alive. Did they give you, you know, so uh, did they give you an idea of what the conditions were in the engine room during that brief? They did. They told us that, you know, likely it's 150 degrees, which it was. It's an explosive environment, toxic, um, water levels unknown, probably shifting with the tide, which it was the, the water for them was going up and down with the tide mm-hmm. for the last 24 hours. And they had been in there 30 hours by the time we got on scene. So they gave us this like thing that as a crew, we're like, all right, uh, max efforts warranted. This is relieving intense pain and suffering certain. And it's at least the probability of saving one life, maybe four, if they're together. And they did not know if they were all together. They didn't know if there was one dude there just tapping, you know? Yeah. So we, as a crew, discussed landing on it in the air during recon. And then, um, again, right there together after that brief. And uh, and the last thing we did before we called the ops boss was I, I went up to that the structural engineer and I said, what do you think about a 9,000 pound helicopter on the side of that ocean going Roro? And he laughed. He laughed at me. He's like, a 9,000 pound helicopter is going to do nothing. You're fine. <laughs> you know, yeah. he laughed. Like he was like, you know, he kind of gave me like this eye roll. And I was like, okay. So you got the warm and fuzzy. Yep. Got the warm yeah, fuzzy. I got the warm and fuzzy. So we, we told the guys, go ahead and load up. We're going to land. But we hadn't called the ops boss yet. So that, that's like the next thing we had to do. But, that's where our thinking was. I mean, you know, the Coast Guard has 20 years of polar ops, you know, operations where, you know, they never once hoisted a scientist to the, like a 65 has never once hoisted a scientist to the ice. And that's not even for life-saving. Yeah. That let's put our wheels down lightly. Let's have our neck jump out for the ice. If we're comfortable with how ice, the thick the ice is next to this melt pond, we're going to shut down on the ice so they can do science. That's what the 65 did for 20 years. And if you have that common sense, um, you know, it's, it's the way that we as a crew felt like we could um, help, you know, with time was like landing instead of hoisting. And that's, you know, that's a 65 mentality. And, you know, you bring up a good point because like one of the things that I don't think we have discussed yet that we did really consider was like, even if, we wind up going on the side of this thing. It's not like we have to, you know, go full collective down and put all of the weight on the helicopter of the helicopter on this thing. You can go light on the skids. Mm-hmm. And that was exactly what we did. Um, yeah. So <laughs> it, there was a lot of ways to mitigate it. And not only that, there was really no concern from the experts that we were going to overload the side of this boat. Yeah. You know, I mean, it's, it's designed to withstand tremendous amount of forces kind of from all directions because it's supposed to go across the ocean, you know? Yeah. Um, Mike, uh, for you, so were these techs that came out from Houston, were they all, uh, EMTs that they had medical, uh, qualifications or or were you planning on getting out with them and kind of tailing with them? Uh, You know how I know you're very experienced at doing what you're doing. (laughs) You're asking the right question. (laughs) (laughs) Stuff. Like I'm, I'm sitting there because it's a very frustrating search and rescue case for me and, yeah. and very proud of my crew. I don't take a lot of like individual responsibility or, or pride in this case because it's it just I wasn't very usable. I, I kept waiting for that salvage crew to just invite me along. And I'm all about hanging over the side of a, of a boat and we can drill things and I'll wade through whatever you need me to. Of course. Instead, I'm a glorified Sherpa for this uh, this whole scenario <laughs> uh, 
it was it was intensely fun landing on the side of the plane and, and or the boat, and I got to to walk the crew out and show them how to be safe on the side of that thing for for them kind of going through further operations. But after that, I'm like, eh, you know, we decided to leave me back at the airport while they made the rest of the runs of the equipment. Oh man. So, <laughs> I feel left out. The the guys the night before had all the uh, the really good stuff, but it was still fun to be part of the the evolution and be part of the decision making process. Because that's one thing I think the Coast Guard really really does well is the entire crew is is gets to, to talk as peers for the most part at that point. Obviously, there's something in command, but yep. you uh you get that that full crew cohesion there, and it's it's a really beautiful thing. And uh, uh, Miss Barnett is is doing great highlighting the whole time aspect that that all we were trying to do is save time but we saved like a a drastic amount of time like had we not been there my crew been able to to ferry the stuff back and forth um it would have taken another 24 plus hours to ever get that equipment out to where it needs to be so yeah we were able to save such an amount of time that it, it, it did relieve you know pain and suffering and even potentially them giving out from 150 degrees for 40, 50 hours is insane. You add another 24 plus hours onto that. Mike, had you guys talked about contingency plans of, Hey, if we are successful in getting these guys out and they need medical attention, what was the plan? Did you guys talk about that? Yeah, we, we knew where we would want to take them at that point. And and we did discuss, uh, you know, just the potential care for them. It's, it's at, at this point in my career, which, is obviously the end of it. I have, you know, I'm pushing, I've, I've had a lot of cases ahead of time and I've had those first, you know, many cases where you go out thinking ahead of time too much of a plan. I stopped doing that years ago. You know, you rarely get on scene or are presented with, with what you've discussed. Um, and I much, much prefer to analyze what's in front of me and then do what needs to be done at that point. Mm-hmm. So I didn't push much further in my head then if we get these guys out and I hope we do because we're expediting this, this drastically, um, I'll provide whatever care needs to be done and we'll, we'll get them to the hospital at that point. Yeah, that's, that's smart. Um, how about you, Matt? I mean, were you a, an, an additional Sherpa for this case? Just lugging gear back and <laughs> forth? Yeah, that was, uh, that was my primary goal. Um, I was uh, very proud uh-huh. to a very proud Sherpa. Uh-huh. Um, nice. But, uh, you know, like, Honestly, uh, that was, it was just cool to be a part of it, you know, just to be standing on the side of a boat, knowing I was kind of a part of something that like really the Coast Guard hadn't done before. Um, and, you know, just getting to be along for the ride and doing what I can. Yeah. You know, I tried to provide input where I could. Um, but, uh, you know, sometimes, sometimes the real heroes are the ones that are driving it and like, I get to be there and back them up and that's kind of cool too. Yeah. No, I think, uh, I think it's so fascinating and, and what strikes me the most is that you guys were working integrally with this team of rescuers that came from Houston and probably a bunch of other surface assets that were down there. And without all those pieces coming together, those four guys that were stuck in that engine room wouldn't have made it. So, um, without you guys, that wouldn't have happened. It's, it's yeah, fantastic. I have absolutely no doubt that they that we definitely wound up contributing to saving those lives. I mean, that's that's the way that I wind up seeing this. I just can't imagine 140 degrees, potentially depleting oxygen because there's toxic fumes everywhere. Mm-hmm. And yeah, it was 100% the right call. 
Yeah, and it's not like Mike was saying, this isn't like our normal case because normally we hear something from sector, we get on scene and it's something else. We talk about that and then it's even different than what you thought and you just were trained to just react and do the right thing at the at the right time. But in this case, like you guys actually did have time to kind of think about it and talk to these other agencies. Um, so it is a little bit different. And I do think it's funny. I feel like you guys are kind of the poster child of this case because that picture of a 65 sitting on top of a railroad sitting on the yeah. side, like no one else knows what happened the night before. They just see you guys sitting on top of that yeah. thing. Yeah. Yeah. It's wild. Absolutely. We, uh, we kind of joke like the beauty of what we decided as a crew to do, uh, kind of made it, you know, super mundane, you know, like five no hover landings, like big deal. That's not, you know, that's not award worthy, but if, but if we ever had a, earn an award for this is probably if there was a public affairs award you know we kind of joke like it was great um public affairs stuff for the coast guard but it was a very simple case because because we made it easy you know and, and save time yeah i gotta ask you crystal how'd you log your landings were they shipboard landings <laughs> no sir i got uh <laughs> well, we got five yeah i got five no hover landings and dan had one and there we go like that's awesome. Uh, easy, easy day. I think we we did a point two each time, and uh, had to do a one point oh in the logbook. So af day. after you guys made the landings, you get the the people on board, the gear on board. What happened then? So we did stand by. Um, there was a couple times where they needed something extra that they didn't know they needed the first couple of loads, and that's why we ended up doing five total deliveries. Um, I think we, we hung out at the FBO kind of standing by for what was needed. Uh, they ended up making contact with them. They, they basically cut one little hole, like the size of a softball, in the ship, put a bore scope down there, saw three dudes sitting there alive. Like, that was just like a miracle. It's like, wow, three alive. And then they see the fourth guy trapped behind the engine room, behind, like, bulletproof glass, um, and he cannot get out. There's a door 70 feet above him and then the other doors below him underwater. And he's like fully trapped in the engine room. But there's four guys alive. It's like, okay, wow, it's a miracle. They're all there. Mm -hmm. And then they then they call us back and they're like, okay, you know, hey, we need water and cliff bars now. You know, oh, we need our we need our fifth guy now. You know, so like we did a couple extra transports and stuff as it came, as it became necessary. Um, and then once they realized the, they were at the lower explosive limit for the air in there, I mean, it really was a disgusting environment, like neck high water, um, 150 degrees, uh, explosive limit, toxic air. So they couldn't really start drilling because they needed to get these fumes out. They were using like cold cutting equipment, but they, what they really wanted to do is like use sparking pools to be quicker. So they called us back and they had us bring in, um, leaf blowers which was kind of like really cool but they basically yeah they had packed that stuff because they kind of knew but they were basically forcing air in one side and can trying to circulate and get come out the other just to kind of like make it so that they keep cutting and um i think they ended up um stopping that because the uh they might have been making it worse is what i remember them saying but but they were like they're trying all these innovative things to get to get to be able to cut this hole big enough for like a man to come out of and then, I mean, it was so hot in there. We heard that uh, the rescuers, these like really awesome salvage guys, were going in there towards the engine room. They had to break the glass and they would have to come out in these like very short intervals and ice their bodies down 
because they couldn't even stand the heat in there. And that's what these four guys had been sitting in for 30 something hours at that point. Um, so, so basically for us, I mean, we were just on standby for anything they might need. And then once they started extracting people, we stayed on scene. We were hitting our crew day limit, I think at that point, but we were, we were standing by as long as we could to uh, medevac any, anybody that needed to, which they ended up not needing that. Mm-hmm. So once they uh, confirmed that they got that last person out and everyone was confirmed, rescued from that case, like what was the, was there any radio chatter or like size of relief? What was the uh, atmosphere? I think we had probably already departed by then to crew day from the fourth uh, person was relieved. Does that sound right to everybody else? Yeah, I yeah. think the fourth one was uh, getting taken out when we were flying back. And I remember we saw it on the news, like the fourth guy coming out and and it was just like joyous. Yeah, we were, we were driving back in a van. Uh, they had sent another SAR crew down uh, in GV mm-hmm. to uh, relieve us for crew day. So they took over the watch when the fourth person was rescued. Um, then they just ended up flying back. And I think they might have even beat us back, even though we were still driving. <laughs> um, but yeah, I mean, there's a wide variety of uh, tools and weird stuff we flew out throughout the morning. Our, I think our first landing was between 8 and 8.30. And then we just went back, hot, picked up the uh, next two guys and dropped them off with some gear. And then... It was like kind of on standby most of the morning and into the early afternoon of, you know, they'd find us like, hey, we need this stuff or this guy right now. And um, they, I think they were just going to Home Depot and buying brand new tools. We were watching them pull like a cardboard box from like Milwaukee tools, you know, new tools right out of the boxes and like, yeah. you know, loading them in the helicopter <laughs> along with the backpack leaf blowers that we brought in and, you know, a case of water for people to drink while they're working. Um, it's kind of a weird variety of stuff, like massive drill bits. I know, Matt, you were helping them with that one that was like a giant cylinder to help cut through the hull. Yeah, Matt's being really humble, but he did a lot of heavy lifting, <laughs> so he did a great job. Yeah, he was packing the helo up and carrying stuff to the edge of the where the guys were like dropping everything down. He did a great job. Yeah, yeah the, the, that big one that had the big cylinder that was like, a, it almost, I don't remember exactly, it almost like seemed like a big drill press or something where you just put it on the side of something so that you could actually push down. Like I, left, I still remember I left a huge gouge on the deck of the 65 that had probably been there into the next heavy maintenance cycle. <laughs> it was just because, you know, there was no way to like lift it out of the helicopter. I just had to drag it Man. like a basket. So Dan, when you're seeing like all these like boxes open up with like cylinders and drills and stuff, were you up there doing a little chase round chart? Make sure you're within weight and balance. <laughs> <laughs> Um, well, 55 is notoriously hard to get out of balance, but, uh, we were definitely watching the loading and the positioning in the cabin. Um, we were definitely on top of the weights. I would say that was probably like the, my biggest responsibility in the left seat that day was, you know, big dudes, lots of gear and heavy tools and like trying to get as accurate fuel load and, um, weight calculations as possible just so we can keep going. Yeah. Nice. Well, when you guys get the echo, it does that for you. So you would have had a lot easier day if you were flying an echo, but, uh, <laughs> Hey, as we, as we wrap things up here, um, we've been kind of asking the other crews, what was any major lessons you learned having gone through this or any recommendations you might have for future air crews? Should they be faced with something similar? You know, we get really wrapped into, you know, we'll, like, well, let's do what we train for. Let's do what we train for. And, and, um, and that, you know, in this case, we got a lot of, not, not in any kind of bad way, but, you know, there's a lot of Monday morning quarterbacks on, on this type, type of thing. It's kind of crazy looking and like, oh, why didn't, why, why didn't we hoist? Why didn't we hoist? You know, and, you know, it's a good question and we should do what we're most comfortable with. But, you know, at the end of the day, fly the helicopter and like, yeah, we train for hoisting, but we also train 
to do a no hover landing, you know, and like, we're good at it. <laughs> we're good at landing. So like think outside the box, like, mm-hmm. you know, that's kind of what we try to teach pilots with on scene initiative. Like what is, what makes the most sense? Like, you know, talk as a crew, you know, be smart, have your risk mitigation strategies for what you don't know, have an egress route, you know, but like at the end of the day, like, um, you know, we're supposed to put our maximum effort into, you know, flying this helicopter for the purpose of saving lives and don't be afraid to do that. And don't be afraid to ask for permission because honestly, like we called the ops boss and, you know, rightfully she said no. Like, uh, and I'm, and I'm going to tell you guys that straight out. She was like, no, don't land on it. You know, and, and we had to kind of have that discussion and to, to new pilots, like, don't be afraid to have that discussion. Don't be afraid to state your case and and get approval and you know we ended up having a really supportive command who you know discussed it with us as well and we as pilots in the wardroom at air station savannah were not afraid to have like a risk-based discussion with our command and we knew where our command stood um when it came to like you know we'd have pilot meetings and we'd talk about mishaps and like co's comments on mishaps all, all, all the wardrooms do it and like get your get get a good idea of how your command feels about things and and what you're allowed to push and what envelopes you're allowed to push and what you're allowed to ask for because if, if you understand kind of like the pulse of your your um command when it comes to risk you're not going to be afraid to ask uh those questions when the time comes and it's your case and you're on scene you know so i think i think that kind of i don't know if that that was long-winded but i think you know understand your command's risk um aversion or you know like acceptability like understand that and then too like don't be afraid to ask ask for what you want and and you know state your case and 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 if you can't put her in the middle of a dark and stormy night like we couldn't you know make the best decision and and be able to defend it when you're standing in front of your ops boss or your command later yeah that's great um thanks crystal dan you got anything to add i think she covered most of the bases there yeah, no, she did a great job and um, really explained better than I'm going to uh, what I was going to say. But uh, that relationship with the ops and the CO and anyone in your chain of command that's required to make uh, decisions like this or plans like this um, is essential. I'd only been at the unit a few weeks when uh, this case happened. Mm-hmm. So I didn't necessarily have the same relationship that Crystal had on, I think, her third year at the unit where she knew like their comfort level um, and like maybe what information she needed to present to them to gain approval. Um, but you know, kind of knowing where they're at and the unit policy on things, you know, through pilot training sessions or just random questions with the CEO or ops or whoever you need to talk to is pretty essential to kind of living up to their expectations and as well as your crews. Yeah, that's awesome. Um, I'll just keep going down the line. How about you, Matt? You got any uh, uh, lessons learned for other flight mix out there? I mean, I think it's, it's already been said, but I think it's really important for flight mix to hear, like get outside of thinking, purely in how you were trained, right? Like that's, that's important for a stand check. That's important for training Mm -hmm. to, you know, kind of do things to a standard. But when things happen that are like this, don't, because I mean, that's what happened over and over again when I would talk to flight mechs. They're like, well, why didn't you hoist? That's what we do. Well, yeah. But at the same time, once you really take in the factors, right? What are the conditions on scene? what are the experts saying? What's the, what's the best way to actually save these guys' lives? And how can you get outside of, 
you know, your own ego. Cause like, I'll be honest, I wanted to hoist. I thought it would be cool to hoist that way. Oh, you know, that's, that's what I do. Yeah. But the, I, yes, I got to take a little bit of a side seat. I didn't really get to do kind of as much, but what we did was substantially more important. And I mean, and I, and, and I, I said this, uh, actually to our CEO later, um, when he was sitting down, I, I went up to him and I'm like, you know, I just want you to know I, there's no way we would have done what we had done if we didn't know we had the backing of our command to do it. Mm-hmm. Because, I mean, I think that was like the general consensus from everybody there was that we had a command that we knew was going to try and support us, you know, regardless of whatever questions he was going to wind up getting about it later when, you know, admirals or whatever wind up seeing this thing happening. And he did. And um, if I could give advice to anybody, you know, have have faith in your crews. We train to do these things and we train to think about these things critically. Mm-hmm. And, and in this case, you know, I think this is a good example of thinking outside the box and doing what we can to get the job done, you know, and, and, and doing it safely. Yeah. Yeah. I think what you guys are talking about is, is really important. And I'm glad we're having this conversation about, you know, risk versus gain and taking a look in at these circumstances, especially right now where uh, the 65 community is, you know, short on flight hours right now. And when we go out and train, we got to do aggressive, safe training. So instead of just doing the routine thing of hoisting at 35 feet and doing a trail line, maybe you try something different, um, you know, knock, knock the rust off, do a couple of trail lines directs and then say, Hey, could we hoist to the bow of this thing? Um, Hey, maybe you're doing an RT1 and you're like, Hey, when's the last time we did a slope landing where maybe our, um, slope is approaching that 10 degrees. Hey, if we had to land here to pick someone up, would we feel comfortable on one wheel leaving the power in that, that kind of thing I think is, um, where we need to focus a little bit as a, as a community. So, I think this discussion is uh, fantastic and you're bringing it to light. Uh, Mike, what about you? Any uh, lessons learned out there? Uh, for rescue swimmers, no. Um, <laughs> <laughs> as far as the crew goes, again, everybody highlighted well. Um, uh, I think a lot of that could have been summed up in, you know, especially reaching out to your, your command to, to look for things that need to be done. It's, you know, you miss 100% of the shots you don't take. Wayne Gretzky, Michael Scott. So you ask. <laughs> And, and that's how you get them. And, and I, I have to give, you know, I love it when a pilot listens to the crew and has no problem asking for the, for the big things. Cause you know, I have had the pilots that are way more hesitant, mm-hmm. uh, not that kind of pilot. So that, that was awesome. You know, the whole crew has a voice. We all felt heard and we all got the job done. So having that kind of crew cohesion and, and even in the back of the helicopter, you're, ability to, to speak up and change the paradigm is is always there so not getting caught inside the boxes everybody brought that point up um i think i think as a rescue swimmer we're we never really feel like we're in the box so that's a little bit of an easier transition generally right but yeah everybody nailed it as far as that goes that's great yeah thanks thanks to everybody and and uh i wanted to close with uh some notes i think we got it from uh your ops boss maybe at the time but um the story of your landing and then what the other two crews did was the number one story in South Korean media. And, uh, I know that the coast guard 
had received praise from President uh, Moon Jae-in and then also personal letters of congratulations from the South Korean Minister of uh, Oceans and Fisheries and then the parent company of that vessel, which I think was Hyundai. Um, And the Ministry of Ocean and Fisheries wrote that, uh, this is a quote, we will always remember your courageous fight for the lives of those on board the Golden Ray with profound gratitude and we'll take this as an opportunity to reaffirm our commitment to contribute to the improvement of maritime safety and global search and rescue efforts. So you talk about like you just rescued 24 people uh, as a crew and, and all those boats that were down below um, as a big team, but you also influenced on a global stage, you know, search and rescue efforts, vessel safety. So uh, real, real kudos to you guys. That's, that's really awesome. Awesome. It's awesome. Sweet. All right. Yeah. yeah cool. cool. Well, uh, you guys got any other parting shots? Do not. Thanks for having us on. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, not yeah. for me. I appreciate the reunion with everyone. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Likewise. You, you bet. You guys take care.